Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 5. In the last episode, I wrapped up the summary of the Book of Numbers, which ends with a few of the nuanced rules concerning the forthcoming allocation of land. This week begins the deeper dive into the people, places, and things uncovered during the summaries. And in this episode, I'll focus on the geographic places, beginning with Negev, first seen in Numbers chapter 13. And with that, let's get started. It was from the Negev that Moses first sent spies into Canaan. He told them, Go up there into the Negev, and go up into the hill country, and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they live in is good or bad, and whether the towns that they live in are unwalled or fortified, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be bold, and bring some of the fruit of the land." End quote. The first mention of the desert was in Genesis, but I saved the deeper dive for now. I'll circle back to those earlier mentions in a minute. First, note that in some places, especially modernly, you'll see it as the Negev, V instead of B. No matter, it's the same place. And that place is a desert that's found in what is today southern Israel, from south of the Dead Sea, all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba, on the northeastern shore of the Red Sea. And, at least in terms of the nation of Israel, it's not insignificant, comprising about 55% of the country's land area. More on the geography and geology in a minute. The ancient Hebrew word for Negev translates to English as dry. That makes sense. It's also occasionally translated especially in a historic biblical context, as the compass direction south. And considering that the desert was south of where the tribes finally settled, the directional translation makes sense, too. In the Old Testament, mentions of the Negev is thought to refer to the northern portion of the desert. And in many cases, it would also include the region that is now part of the semi-arid Arad-Beersheba Valley, from an agricultural perspective, this valley receives enough rain to allow some agriculture. So in our modern sense, it's not included in the desert, but to the Israelites, it was. Speaking of the city of Beersheba, it's found in this desert. Beersheba is frequently associated with Abraham and Isaac. With these patriarchs, they had altars and wells in the region and it's also thought to be where Jacob dreamt of the stairway to heaven. Backing up a bit, it was here that in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham lived after leaving Egypt. Which gets us to the book of Numbers. From the Negev, Moses sent the twelve spies into Canaan, where they scouted out the promised land for forty days and nights. Following this, and after the forty years of wandering, and also after Joshua led the crossing of the Jordan, the Negev would be inhabited by the tribes of Judah and Simeon. King Solomon would take control of the entire Negev desert, all the way to Aqaba, and in doing so, gain a port on the Red Sea. After Solomon, when the kingdom would split, 
the entire desert would come under control of the tribe of Judah. Again. Of course, given what is written about Abraham, we know that the desert and its surrounds were occupied even earlier. Nomads lived in the area as early as 7,000 years ago, which would place them well before Abraham. But artifacts are few, so the actual dating of the first human occupation is highly variable. The area would grow when the Copper Age came about due to the mining of the essential ore in the region. This, along with agriculture and other factors, would lead to settlements of Canaanites, Amalekites, Amorites, Nabataeans, and Edomites, all thought to date to about 2000 BC. This is about the same time when Abraham was thought to have lived in the region. Sometime between 1400 and 1300 BC, Egypt introduced both copper mining and smelting in the Negev. Do note they did the same at the same time in Sinai. This is generally thought to have been between 100 and 200 years before the Exodus. And considering the sons of Jacob turned Israel were recorded as being in Egypt for 400 years, the mining and smelting would have been introduced in the Negev during the period they lived in Egypt. Centuries later, and about the same time the Kingdom of Israel was uniting, mining was expanding in the Negev. Also at this time, the Assyrian Empire was gaining power, and the ore in the area became highly sought after by the regional powers. Those regional powers were the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and in their recent past, the Hittites. For these reasons, the Negev city of Beersheba was gaining importance as a regional trade city, as well as for government administration. A few hundred years later, in the 4th century BC, the Nabataeans were in control. They would irrigate the land, leading to further agricultural expansion. Also, they would push the development of the spice trade route, a route that specialized in incense. The Nabataeans would exercise tight control over the trade between their capital of Petra and the Mediterranean ports. Their power over the area would last until the Romans won it over in 106 AD. And notice the dates. This means that when Christ walked just north of the area, and the apostles spread out later in the first century AD, the Nabataeans controlled the Negev. After the Romans took control, the population reverted back to what was mostly Arabian nomads, still engaging in trade. After the Romans were the Byzantines, who, in the 4th century AD, introduced Christianity to the population. The region, still benefiting from the Nabataean-introduced irrigation, continued their agricultural practices, and during Byzantine control, the population grew greatly. Of course, like all areas in this region, a couple of hundred years later, the Islamists took control. About this same time, copper, gold, and stone mining and quarrying took off in the region. This meant that between the 8th and 11th centuries AD, the region experienced an economic expansion. Roads were developed, and the port on the Red Sea, Aqaba, grew. Next were the Bedouins, who would maintain control for 900 or so years, until about 1900. 
Do note that during much of this period, officially it was under Ottoman control, but the actual rule by the Ottomans was loose at best. The nomadic Bedouins lived essentially undisturbed in the region, and the Bedouins were loosely organized. Actually, that's misleading. In our manner of thinking, Bedouins were not organized as a singular group at all. Likely the best way to understand their society is through one of their maxims. To quote, I am against my brother. My brother and I are against my cousin. My cousin and I are against the stranger. And one of the many consequences of such a society is a lack of agreed-upon written history. What we do know about the period is garnered through their oral history and folk stories. In a classic historic sense, not extremely reliable. Especially since most of it cannot be verified through outside sources. Throughout the period, the nomads survived through livestock herding, mostly sheep and goats. At the same time, agriculture in the region was on the decline, and the desert remained the desert, punctuated by the lack of water. In order to keep the herds and themselves alive, they were constantly on the move in search of vegetation and hydration. And this lasted for almost a millennium, until the year 1900, when the Ottomans finally established a governmental center to control what was to them southern Syria. They did this in the city of Beersheba, where they also built schools and a railway switchyard, symbolic of the establishment of a modern society. This railroad connected the region with the port of Rafa, which is in the modern country of Israel, where the Sinai Peninsula meets the Mediterranean in Western continental Asia. About a dozen years later, it was estimated that the nomadic population of the region was around 55,000. Shortly afterwards, in 1916 and 17, the area came under British control, becoming part of what was known as Mandatory Palestine. And the term mandatory doesn't mean it had to be part of Palestine, but that control of the area was determined by a mandate. Words mean things. In 1947, when the United Nations was partitioning the region for the future Jewish state of Israel, the Negev was included within the geographic bounds of this proposed nation. Over the next two years, as Israel fought its neighbors to remain independent, it managed to secure the Negev, thereby giving it access to the Red Sea, while also serving as a southern geographic buffer against a land invasion. This last point is one of the primary reasons independent Israel has many military bases in the desert. Before moving on, a little about the geography and climate of the area. The area is generally defined as a rocky desert, with dry rocky mountains interspaced with wadis, so dry riverbeds. Parts of it, especially the northern region, do receive rain, about a foot or 30 centimeters a year. But that's the wettest part. The other regions in the desert get much less, and the especially dry areas are sand dunes reaching up to about 100 feet or 30 meters. Outside of the northern region, the desert is especially inhospitable, 
even today, so it's sparsely inhabited. Of course, 3,000 or so years ago, it would have been even more uninhabitable. You would have to thought that manna, quail, and water from rocks would have been welcomed. But the text of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers makes it clear that you can't please everyone. Despite being a dry desert, there is a limited amount of vegetation, including the acacia tree. No shock there. It is mentioned in the text as the source material for many of the specified vessels and structures of the tabernacle. As far as regional animals go, there are Arabian leopards, which are usually between 44 and 66 pounds, so 20 and 30 kilos. Today, these medium-sized cats are rare, with an estimated 200 left in the wild. I could find no estimates on how many lived in the region 3,000 years ago. Another cat, albeit somewhat smaller, is a caracal. Then there's a marbled polecat, which, despite its name, is not a cat, but more akin to a weasel or ferret. There are also wolves and golden jackals. Of course, with predators in the region, they have to have something to eat. In this case, the mountain gazelle in the ibex, essentially a mountain goat. One of the smaller mammals found there is the mole-like shrew. A native reptile is the small Negev tortoise. There are a few species that are no longer found in the desert, but likely lived there when the Israelites were wandering. These include the Arabian oryx, which is a large antelope, also the Persian fallow deer, and finally, wild donkeys. Then a little bit speculative, but a possibly native species, the now extinct majestic Barbary lion. And that's it for the Negev. Next on the list is Hormah, mentioned in chapter 14. After the Israelites refused to go to Canaan, due to the unfavorable report from some of the spies, many of the tribe changed their minds and decided to fight their way into the promised land of Canaan. Moses warned them that God's judgment was final, and if they did exercise their free will and choose to go. Picking up the text in verse 43, The Amalekites and the Canaanites will confront you there, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. Despite this warning, they did go up to the heights of the hill country. Even though the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and Moses had not left the camp, then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them, pursuing them as far as Hormah. End quote. And this passage begs the question, where was this place known to them as Hormah? The short answer is, we don't know. The more complete answer will only take a minute or two. Later in Numbers, in chapter 21, it was the location of an Israelite military victory over the Canaanite king of Arad. The word Hormah is thought to translate to either broken rock or devoted to destruction. In my mind, given that it's used as a place name in the text, I'm going with broken rock. And besides the mention in Numbers, it is the location of a few conflicts and the home to a so-called King of Hormah 
later in the Old Testament. One of these mentions in Judges chapter 21 leads to this translation as the city of destruction. In the Judges passage, we learn a little about the history of the region. It reads, The descendants of Hobab the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up to the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. They then went and settled with the Amalekites. Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephith and devoted it to destruction. So the city was called Hormah. The actual location has been lost to both history and likely the shifting desert sands. Given the text where it's mentioned, it's thought to have been between Beersheba and Gaza, but honestly, that really doesn't narrow it down. And that's it for Hormah. Next on the places in Numbers is Mount Hor. And like Hormah, there's a bit of confusion about the location of the mountain and even confusion if it is a singular peak. In Numbers, in both chapters 20 and 33, Mount Hor is described as being located on the border of the land of Edom. Numbers 34, though, describes Hor as being a point on the northern boundary of the promised land. This is incongruent with the other Hor. So, the simplest explanation is that there were two places with the same name. The first one is the place where Aaron died, and since it's first in the text, I'll cover the little that is known about it first. This peak, like so many things that we know only a little about, has been the subject of thousands of years of debates concerning its location. Josephus, yes, he makes another reappearance, identified it as the peak known in Arabic as Jabul Nabi Horan which translates to the mountain of the prophet Aaron. This peak is located in the Enamite Mountains and is modernly known as Jabil Ashun Sarah, near the city of Petra, or so some think. Close to the ancient ruined city of Petra, there is a mountain with a mosque on top of it. This building is known as Aaron's tomb, but the building was constructed in the 14th century A.D., so nearly 3,000 years after Aaron's death. Not likely his tomb. But it is a building said to be built on top of his burial place. Like I said, it's highly debated. There's another proposed mountain, Jabul Madarah, near the present-day border of Israel and Egypt, so on the eastern fringe of the Sinai Peninsula. There are other contenders, and I'll spare you the listing. The one thing that's commonly agreed on is that whichever peak it is, it's somewhere near the Negev and in the desert, a dry, desolate peak. And that's it for the southern Hor. The northern peak is sometimes alternatively referred to as Mount Horin. And if only for the sake of the semblance of clarity, I'll use that name here. But keep in mind that in the text of the Old Testament, it's Mount Hor. Like I said earlier, this one is part of the northern boundary of the future land of Israel, the land to be gained after the Jordan crossing led by Joshua. Later, in the Old Testament history, 
during the scholarship occurring in and around the Second Temple, it was set as a peak in the Amenis mountain range. The Amenis range is a small part of the Taurus Mountains. The range is near the Mediterranean on the Turkish side of their border with Syria, well north of the Negev. Later rabbinic writings defined it as the boundary of the land of Israel, quoting, From the mountains of Armona to the river of Egypt, whatever is within that line belongs to the land of Israel, but whatever is without that line is without the land. End quote. Adding to the confusion about the northern peak is that it's sometimes referred to as Amana, and in other places as Mount Manus, or Umani. From a pronunciation perspective, this is close to Mount Amana and the Anti-Lebanese Mountains, all contributing to a lack of clarity. Either way, that's it for the two Mount Horrors found in Numbers. Finally, I have just enough time left in this episode to cover the King's Highway, mentioned a couple of times in Numbers. This trade route began on its southern end in Heliopolis, Egypt. In our current world, this is in northern Egypt and is essentially now part of the greater Cairo area. From there, the King's Highway turned east, traversing the Sinai Peninsula and continued essentially eastward to the port of Aqaba, on the extreme northeast side of the Red Sea. Then a turn almost due north, passing through Petra. From there it would go through Moab. I'll pause and spend a bit of time on this part of the highway, as this is what's referenced in Numbers. Recall that after the Israelites departed from Kadesh, Moses asked the king of Edom to use the road to travel through his territory. The king refused, even after assurances that he would be made whole for anything the people consumed along the way, with the king showing his strength via his assembled army. So Moses took the people a different way, presumably avoiding Edom altogether. Later, the mass of Israelites would find themselves in territory between the rivers Arnon and Jabuk, and apparently somewhere along the king's highway. From there, Moses asked Sihon, the Amorite king, to use the road, making the same payment promise to him that had been made earlier to the king of Edom. And Sihon refused, also assembling his army as a show of force. For reasons unexplained, the Israelites decided to fight this time, defeating the king and taking control over his former territory. It was this area that would later be settled by the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. Of course, this also meant that the Israelites controlled part of the highway, and therefore could generate revenue from the trade it carried. Some of the later battles found in the Old Testament were for territory that included the route. It was this trade that, at a minimum, contributed to these conflicts. But back to the road's route. After Moab, the highway continued north across what is today Jordan, through Damascus, and up to the Euphrates River. This northern part of the road had it passing through Amman and Damascus. It would terminate at Rashifa, on the upper Euphrates. Later, the Nabataeans who inhabited the area in the middle of the road's route, and who are best associated with the ruins at Petra, 
profited greatly from the trade of luxury items like frankincense and spices from southern Arabia. It's thought that control over this central portion was a large contributing factor in their conflict with the Asmonians in the first century BC. The Romans under Emperor Trajan would rebuild the road, using it not only for trade, but also the expedited movement of troops. Islamists would conquer the region in the 6th and 7th centuries AD, whereafter it was part of the pilgrimage route to Mecca. Then the Crusaders came and took control, at least for a while. During this time, the European Christian Crusaders usually allowed the pilgrimaging Muslims to pass through the region unharmed. Usually. Except for one, Reynaud of Chatillon, who attacked and plundered the Muslim pilgrims twice. It was these attacks that partially contributed to the eventual defeat of the Crusaders in the 12th century and also Reynaud's own death via Sultan Saladin. But that's a different story for a much later date, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll begin with a place known as Maraba. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.